Good morning, friends. I invite you to take your copy of the Bible and go to Psalm 133, would you? Very often, thank you for your ministry to one another in song. You know that congregational singing is always important. I think it's particularly so today um, to, to confess these truths together. We don't just confess these things as true. We sing them, for they have uh, impacted and shaped our lives. And you know we believe these things, don't you? With all of our hearts, what we just sang, we believe. And that's what we brace against. That's what steadies us. These are the times when the things that we say we believe become very precious to us. So they were true last Sunday when our body felt a whole lot more whole. And they are true today. And so we can rest right there. Friends, the Lord is near. And he will help. And we're going to all be okay to know that. The eternal God, Deuteronomy 31, the eternal God is our refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. So you know that for all of us, the grief is strong today. Matt and I talked midweek, should we consider redirecting our focus? And we concluded together the one thing Rick would not want would be for us to give him two funerals. And so we're going to press forward with, we would, we would have a chewing out coming someday in glory had we done that. So we're going to continue where we have been. But if you allow me a point of personal privilege, there is no chance I'm getting through this weekend without telling you a story I've told probably a hundred times. Um, I'd been here about two years and... Um, you, you all know Rick. Rick has been a part of this church and really has been shepherding this church since the early 90s. And so he had been here about 10 years by the time I came along. I had been at the church for a couple of years. And um, I asked to meet with him uh, after a service on a Wednesday night. We went up to the Shoney's on Western Avenue. I think it's a car wash now. And um, the brother loved Shoney's. I don't know. I, we... And we, uh, we sat together. My heart was burdened. I, there, was, there were things that we just felt, I felt so strongly the church needed to reform in. And there were some things that had really grieved my heart and uh, some fairly significant major changes that I felt like needed to be proposed. And he was by a, a pretty large margin the most influential man at the church. And so I just sat down, and for about an hour and a half, I just laid it out all over the table and just shared my whole heart with him. He just listened, didn't interrupt. He may ask a few clarifying questions. And after it was all over, I fully expected him to look at me and say, well, I don't know, Ronnie, I hope you find what you're looking for out there. But he said, brother, just show us in the Bible. What you're proposing, just show us in Scripture. And I feel like that night we sort of drove a philosophical stake in the ground as a church. And I feel like the trajectory of our church changed. What he was saying, that, that statement, it is 
profound in its simplicity. Show us in the Bible. I think he was saying, Ronnie, I don't know that I can trust you, but I know that I can trust the Bible. And if you're going to upend our polity, if you're going to re-examine our soteriology, the way our church is governed, then you've got work to do. I think from a human perspective, we should know this. By, by the way, to, he would say this, to God Almighty be the glory. right? To God Almighty, he would say that. But from a human perspective, much of what you and I treasure today about this church is attributable on a human plane to his insistence that we order it scripturally. And so we should praise the Lord for that and thank him today for that kindness. Why do I tell that story? Two things, two reasons. One is our topic today is one that Rick felt very, very strongly about. In fact, you know him. If you spent time around him, the unity of the body, it's what kept him up at night, that the body would be okay, that there would be peace across the body. He grieved disunity about as much as about anybody I can imagine. He, he was, I've said this over and over again, he was built by God to shepherd people. It's just how God made him. So that's one reason. Uh, he cared about it and modeled it admirably. But another area is just as a reminder that Scripture is sufficient. So we need to go to God's Word today on this topic. Today we are dealing with conflict in the body, differences that exist between brothers and sisters, how to handle conflict scripturally. And you know that that is a topic that it could be a minefield. And so what you don't need from me is my most plausible theory on that topic. My, my best ideas, your ideas on this topic are not better. My ideas on this topic are not better. We must go to God's word and just address this as best we can, just drawing out from God's word what happens in a church like ours when a dispute surfaces between brothers and sisters. And I think we know it is a hard reality because we live in a fallen world where people contend with the flesh and our, our flesh surfaces and sometimes uh, fissures can exist within a body. I am thankful to say, Bridget and I were talking about on the way in today, I'm thankful to say that we're not having to address this as a way of correcting something that is current in our body. By God's grace, we are enjoying peace. So what we will get today is preemptive, preemptive. This is readying our hearts for the possibility that this could come at some point. And I would say at some point it very likely will because we live in a broken world. If you live in covenant with people, in covenant here in this body where we've made promises to one another, if you live in covenant with a spouse, conflict's just gonna happen. It's just bound to happen. You're, somebody's gonna say something they shouldn't have said. Somebody's gonna fail to say something they should have said. Somebody's gonna rub a blister. And so what do we do when those difficulties happen? What do we do in cases where we are personally offended or it becomes clear that we have in some way been an offense to others? Well, we know we mustn't dismiss it out of hand. We must take it very seriously and soberly. So we want to look at that today. Psalm 133, the opening verse of this should sound familiar to you by this point of January because we have been singing it all month long. Let's look at it. Full um, psalm, not, much, not very lengthy. Behold. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil 
on the head, running down onto the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this short psalm is a simple and poetic celebration of the sweetness of unity. If you have found yourself in a fractured relationship with someone that you treasure, somebody you love, and when the work has been done and unity has been restored and things are sweet again, you know that opening verse just resonates as true. This is so good. It is very sweet. It is very good to live together in unity. Unity is an emblem, according to this psalm, of the consecration of the Lord. It's like the oil that went down onto the beard of Aaron, down onto the collars of his robe. It was an emblem of his consecration belonging to the Lord. It nourishes us like the dew nourishes the hillsides of northern Israel. It's just like the dew coming down, the peace that comes in Hermon and Zion. It is a fruitful matter. It is something to treasure, and it is something to pursue. So in a six-week series like this, why would we give an entire session to the subject of reconciliation between parties in dispute? Why would we give such focus on that, one-sixth of our study to that? And I think the obvious answer, you know this, hopefully this will come as no surprise to anybody here, because unity, reconciliation, forgiveness, our gospel themes, and the gospel is at the root of everything we do here. Reconciliation, forgiveness, it's a big part of our personal story, for it is at the heart of what grace has made us and is making us. We who were alienated from God, hostile toward God, not at peace with God, have been pursued, loved, restored, and forgiven. We have been shown mercy. We are those who now see that 100 denarii debt a little differently because we know very well that our 10,000 talent debt has been cleared. And so this truth is large in our thinking because it is consistent with our experience. There is an unresolved conflict in the body We have to be deliberate. We have to be intentional. We have to be um, forceful in pursuing and exercising an initiative to seek reconciliation. Because there are, as you might frequently hear and know, gospel uh, implications. We're going to see that as we work our way through this. This is something you have to run down. It is not going to happen naturally. It's going to be something you have to pursue. Ephesians 4 verse 2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love and make every effort. This is not passive language, this is active language. Make every effort to maintain the spirit of unity, the unity of the spirit, I should say, through the bond of peace. It is an aspiration, we aim at it, we pursue it. We're gonna direct our time or give our, kind of structure our time around two emphases. First, a scriptural motivation for unity. 
Why ought we prioritize that? I'll suggest three motives. And then spend the remainder of our time pointing to a scripturally ordered means at pursuing this unity that we treasure. First part of the message, why ought we? Second part of the message, how do we do it? What does it look like? Is there some direction from God's word? Well, first we're gonna look at what are the motivations for seeking reconciliation, assuming that it is important to us, assuming that it does matter and it ought matter. Why then is it important? Let me give you three reasons. Number one, addressing conflict presents an opportunity for us to reverence Christ by preferring others. Now that is biblical language. It gives us an opportunity to reverence, to revere Christ by preferring others. Now that language comes from Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5.21 calls us to, very interesting language, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's an interesting verse, isn't it? I see a horizontal focus and a vertical focus. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So because I revere Christ, I come in under you. I prioritize you over me. I don't have to win. I don't have to come out on top. Because of reverence for Jesus, I think it's vital that we see this, that we, this is an overflow of a reverent awe as to who Christ is for us and who we are in him. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Horizontally, we go low. Vertically, we reverence Christ. Out of reverence for Christ, we prefer one another. You may see those as disparate themes, themes that do not necessarily uh, connect well. How does esteem for others become a, an act of reverence for Christ? If, if there is an impulse in you to come out on top, if there's an impulse in you to subdue and subject those around you, when you take the lower seat, when you esteem others as preferable to yourself, when you submit to them, how then is that reverent? There may be a number, number of answers to that question, but probably the one that comes to my mind most readily is from Philippians chapter two. Where the Bible says, have this mind among yourselves. So this is a directive to all of us. Think this way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be retained or grasped, but he emptied himself taking the very nature of a servant, the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men and being found in human form, Jesus. He humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on the cross. So here we are given the example of the Lord Jesus, what theologians refer to as his humiliation. When he left heaven to become Human, taking all the sinless infirmities of humanity and taking the likeness of men, actually becoming a man. This is given to us in Philippians 2, not just as a theme to be considered and believed, but it is given to us as a model 
for how to order your life. It is a doctrine to be lived. Have this mind in yourself. Think this way, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who being very nature God, not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself a servant. Now, back to Ephesians 5. If Jesus took up the basin and the towel, if Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, if Jesus came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many, if he became a servant, but I am unwilling, can you see how that's an irreverent act? If he went low, and I won't, that's its own kind of ugly irreverence. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So addressing conflict allows us to revere him by taking the lower seat, by preferring others. Number two, addressing conflict frees us to worship. We value this hour, don't we? We look forward to it all week long. We come in here and worship. This is a, this is, we bracket this time as particularly precious. Addressing conflict frees us up to enter this time, and not just this time, but worship all through, the, through the, the week, but particularly on this time. It frees us to worship. Where in the world do I get that? Well, I get it from the Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew chapter five, verses 23 and 24. Jesus speaks to this. He is telling us our horizontal relationships have vertical consequences. The way I treat you is attended to by God and it affects the freedom with which I can approach God. This is why when a a man does not live with his wife according to knowledge, Peter would tell us, we want to live with her in an understanding way. When he doesn't give honor to her as to the weaker vessel, it fouls up your prayers. You don't even know how to pray right. His prayers are hindered because of his failure to honor his, his wife. Our horizontal relationships have vertical consequences and we live our lives before the face of God. I mentioned, we get this from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter five, verses 23 and 24. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Do you see the picture? It's time to worship. We're going before the Lord. We're lifting our voice in song. We're opening the word of God. We're kneeling in prayer. We're engaging and communing with the Lord. Now remember, hang on now. Wait, wait, wait. I've got a brother with whom I'm in conflict. That's the, that's the image. And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift at the altar. First, go and be reconciled. And then return and offer your gift. I've mentioned this dozens of times to this congregation, and I always say it the same way. If you're offering your gift, so in this context, you're bringing your goat, right? You've got your goat on the, on the leash, and you're bringing him to the temple. And, and as you're waiting to offer your, your gift, you remember, hang on, i got a problem with my brother. What do you do? You say to your neighbor, here, hold my goat. You go seek to be reconciled. And then you come back and offer offer your gift. This is important enough to interrupt worship. Do you believe this? This is important enough to stall worship. Go get this right and then come back. 
and offer your gift. Last time I used that illustration, one of y'all sent me a meme that you'd created with this beautiful picture. You know, John Piper's got, uh, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. The meme on there had my name, a quote from me. Here, hold my goat. That was the beautiful, uh, but uh, leave your gift at the altar. Go, offer your gift to the Lord after having been reconciled. Do you see this as a priority? This is a priority from, from the Lord. Addressing conflict frees us to worship. It is what we are called to. Romans chapter 12, there's a little section right in the middle of Romans chapter 12 that's so helpful on this topic. But we are called, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. So it's, you don't want to be the holdout. You don't want to be the one. You want to go as far down the road to reconciliation as they will permit you to go. As much as is possible, live at peace with all men. So addressing conflict, addressing difficulty presents an opportunity to revere Christ by preferring others. It frees us to worship. And finally, it demonstrates love for the unseen God by loving the brother we see. Now you recognize that as being drawn right from 1 John 4, right? It, it demonstrates love for the unseen God, the God we cannot see, by loving the brother we see. John said, nobody's ever gonna call, uh, accuse John the beloved of being subtle. He's very clear on this. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he can see cannot love God whom he cannot see. The two are absolutely connected. So in addressing this, making it a priority, by pursuing unity, we demonstrate, we manifest love for the unseen God by treasuring his image bearers. Like you can't with the same mouth. You cannot with the same mouth praise God and curse those who are made in the image of God. They are connected themes. We often refer to the Lord's Prayer. We generally are referencing there the model prayer. Maybe it may be more helpful to refer to the Lord's Prayer as John 17, where Jesus communes with the Father. And you remember he prayed for this. Among the things, this is, these are the last hours of his life, what he brings to the Father is a concern for peace and unity among the people of God. He prayed that we would be one, even as he and the Father are one. Listen to the scripture. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they may also be in us, that we are pulled into Fred Sanders' language, the happy land of the Trinity, that, that they may be one even as we are one, Christ and the Father, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one. Now listen to this. Why does this matter? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you have loved me. Do you see how this matters? Our living in unity 
testifies to the validity of the incarnation and his great love for the people of God. The same love that the father had for the son. A unified church testifies to the reality of Jesus' work on earth. This is how the world will know that he is who he says he is. And it's also how they will know that the father loved the church with the same love he had for Jesus. That you may be one. This is not an incidental question. It matters enormously. Enough so that it really casts doubt on the legitimacy of our profession if this is not big in our minds. There's reason to have profound questions about the legitimacy of your profession if this does not feel big in your thinking. Love and esteem for unity across the body. Scripture would suggest that it's not really possible for me to be really jazzed about my reconciliation with God, yet ambivalent about my reconciliation with you, my brother or sister. They both matter. They're related themes. So that's the why. It presents an opportunity to reverence Christ by preferring others. Addressing conflict frees us to worship and it demonstrates love for the unseen God by loving the brother we see. That's why it matters. Now what about the how? That's the why. Here's the how. Let's consider how exactly do we pursue this, assuming it matters, and it certainly does. We're gonna look at some scripturally ordered means for seeking reconciliation. If I were to ask you, if I were to put it out to the floor here, what is the first step in resolving conflict? Well, those of you who are acquainted with your New Testament, particularly the Gospel of Matthew, may go to Matthew chapter 18, where we're instructed to go alone to the brother. And that would be a good answer. But I'm going to suggest something even prior to that. Before you go, before you go alone to your offended brother, I'm going to suggest just a line of thought before the Lord that may, may actually answer the issue before you ever open your mouth. This is a guiding principle related to confrontation. Friends, you've got to do your heart work first. Not your hard work, although heart work can be hard work. The heart work first. When a dispute surfaces, I'm gonna advise that you pull away and get before the Lord and examine your hearts. Everything God brings into our lives, he brings to fashion us into the image of his son, Jesus. Even a dispute with someone dear to you, this is meant to serve a redemptive purpose. So the, before you ever engage them, to pull away, get before the Lord and say, well, Lord, what, is, what is it that you are doing in my heart through this hardship and dispute? What is that whole purpose? Let me suggest four questions to ask before you go and approach your brother and sister with whom you are in conflict. Before you go, ask these questions. Number one, is this discussion motivated by love for God's glory and for my neighbor's highest good? So if you can't answer that question affirmatively, hit pause, right? If you cannot say what is behind this approach is I'm concerned for the glory of God and I love my friend. Is this discussion motivated by love for God's glory and my neighbor's 
highest good. Should I choose to address this matter, what is driving that conversation? So what might drive it? Is it your own vindication? Is it your own vindication? Is it, is it a need to be shown that you are right and they are wrong? Is that what is behind it? Is it retribution? Is, there, is, is what is behind it a kind of vengeance? You've hurt me and now I'm gonna hurt you for hurting me. Is, that, is there even a subtle sense of that is what is behind it? Is it an effort to even the score? I would say if those fleshly motives are at play, then we are not quite ready to sit down with our friend. Do I love them? Do I love them? Is, is, this, is this driven by affection for my brothers? We saw it just recently, Galatians chapter six, verse one. Brothers, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore one another. That's orthopedic language. Set the bone. You who are, are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of humility and meekness, gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. So what is motivating this? It's a desire to see them back on their feet and doing well. I just, it's love for our neighbor. I've told you, when our kids were small, when a pattern began to happen, where maybe there's a little tattling, you know, just trying to get their sibling in trouble, we used a line, we used it for years. Never correct except to protect. And I think that applies in this context as well. If I feel a need to correct my friend, beneath that should be a love for them that just wants to see them okay, to see them flourish, that they're protected, that that they are whole and well. There is to be a sacrificial love beneath it all. So is this driven by a love for glory of God? My neighbor's highest good. Number two, Have I dealt seriously with my own sin? Before I go to them, have I dealt soberly and seriously with my own sin? And almost always, when there's a conflict, there is not one person who is 100% in the right and one person who is 100% in the wrong. There's generally enough sin to go around in that conflict. So all of us have our own contributions. So am I asking myself the question, have I dealt seriously with my own contribution to the conflict? Am I related to this humbly? Am I bringing this back under the submission to the Lordship of Christ, confessing it, repenting, forsaking the sin? Am I more troubled by their sin or my own? It's a serious question. Does does their offense seem larger in your thinking and more of a priority than your own? Am I losing sleep over what they've done wrong to me? Or am I grieved by those areas where I have transgressed relationally or stepped out of bounds? Now where do I get this? Again, from the Sermon on the Mount. Our Lord uh, preaching in Matthew chapter seven, which we'll get to Oh, I don't know, a few years. We're getting into Matthew. Uh, Matthew chapter seven, verse three. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your eye? 
Or how do you say to your brother, hey, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, and that's what Jesus said, hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I think Jesus is using hysterical, hysterical imagery there. Hey, let me help you. Let me, let me help you. I see a little speck in your eye. And a beam <laughs> protruding from your own eye. The imagery there, the language we've used for years is, that is to be speck-obsessed, beam unaware. Obsessed with the speck in your brother's eye, completely oblivious to the fact that there is a massive, significant sin issue that you have yet to seriously address. Sometimes we'll see this in marriage. It really is true. It's a lot of times you sit down with a couple in conflict and she is very interested in making him a good husband. And he is very interested in making her a good wife. But you show me, I, I, we were just talking about this not, uh, just, just a few weeks ago. It's good, um, it's good to have Blake and Ella back from their honeymoon. They're here with us today. We talked about it just a few weeks ago. You show me a man or a woman who is willing to humbly address their own sin, humbly apply the gospel in addressing their own sin. That couple's going to be just fine. Now, we can talk about all the other problems, money and sex and finance, all, you know, all the things. But really, you show me somebody who's humbly addressing their own sin, they're probably going to be okay. They're going to be fine. Well, that is really what is in view here. Number three, am I committed to guarding my offender's name and reputation? This is massive. Even in this conflict, am I, am I committed to guarding my neighbor's name and his reputation. I want you to get this. Y'all, slander is godless. And I know, it, we just swim around in it all the time. Thankfully, we don't see this happening very often here. It does happen, but not very often. But it is godless. It is not your First Amendment right to slander your brother or sister. It's godless. Gossip is godless. It is wicked. The, the careless, unfruitful, vicious in many cases, unkind, unfair treatment with your words of a brother or sister, that is out of bounds for a Christian. There is no grounds for that among God's people. I don't care where you see it or who's modeling it. That is contrary to the word of God. You gotta be guarded and careful with your words. And I would say this probably as much as anything else, this right here is where ch churches get blown up. If weak polity and dry preaching has slain her thousands, ungoverned speech has slain her tens of thousands. Careless language. Vicious language, unkind treatment, just the, the careless use of our words. Listen to the, that's what James said. James says we stumble in all kinds of ways. And if a man does not stumble, stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, a mature man, able 
also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, that though they are so large, are driven by strong winds. They're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison With it, we bless the Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who were made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. It's like a poisonous animal. It's like a fire. We watched Gatlin burn, burn, didn't we? We watched it burn. How did it happen? Just a little carelessness. Just careless. And we watched it burn. Death and life, Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. You can bring life or you can murder. And there's just no way to undo it. You, you, you can do everything you can to undo it. Once it's said, you can't unring a bell. You, once it's out there, there's no retrieving it. You're not getting all that toothpaste back in the tube. It's out there. So there should be a guard. On either side of that, either speaking it, or friends, hearing it, listening. Let me, just, let me just, can I just lay my whole heart out here for you? Wouldn't you love to be a part of a church where the culture is at the point where we've moved into uncharitable speech, the impulse across the entire body would be to say, hang on, right there, let's pull them in. Let's pull them in. If we got something to talk about, let's talk about it. But I do not have ears to hear. You talk about my brother or sister. Wouldn't you love to be a part of a church like that? Listen, just because it happens everywhere doesn't make it okay. You're careful and guarded with your language. Look what Amy Carmichael said. The absent are safe in our presence. Amen. The absent are safe in our presence. Augustine, I'm told, posted a sign above his dining room table that said, if he who speaks evil of an absent man or woman is not welcome at this table. Amen. No ears to hear it. No ears to hear it. Ephesians 4.29. By the way, this is one scripture that could revolutionize your family in our church. One scripture. Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk. What is that word corrupting? Uh, decaying. No death talk. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such a thing as is good for edification. In other words, it builds up. Is this going to build me up? It's going to build them up? As fits the occasion that it may minister or give grace to the hearers. Someone has said that God gave us our teeth to serve as sentries, like soldiers, to keep out what ought not come in 
and to keep in what ought not come out. To be guard, there's some things we just ought not say. The acrostic, maybe you've heard it, it's not a bad one. Think, T-H-I-N-K. Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it important? Is it necessary? And is it kind? Guarded, careful, restrained in our language. Number four, does my approach to this conflict fall within scriptural parameters? Does my approach to this conflict fall within scriptural parameters? And here, I want to commend the work of Ken Sandy. If you don't have Ken Sandy's book, I've got it here, The Peacemaker, um, this would be worth digging up and finding. Um, find Middle, Monty Middlebrook. He has done a lot of work on this and has uh, spent a lot of time taking his home group through much of it. Enormously helpful. Probably the seminal work, practical work on working peace and amidst conflict. But he provides three scriptural approaches to resolving conflict. So there are three scripturally viable alternatives when a conflict surfaces. The first is, and I'll tell you, this was revolutionary for me. The first option is you can overlook the offense. I don't know, if, I don't know why that seems so new to me. Like you're, you're telling me it's okay just to just act like it didn't happen. You can't, you can't pick up every stick in the road. Sometimes you just get up and keep going, right? You, you can overlook the offense. That is a perfectly viable scriptural alternative when you are grieved or sinned against, when a dispute surfaces. If you consider the possibility that you could just set the stones down, you just set the stones down and not engage the dispute at all. It's a pretty good rule of thumb. You do not have to attend every argument you're invited to. It's, you're, you're fine to say, sorry, I'm not RSVP in that one, and just move on. The alternative, the only alternative I know on this, or at least one alternative, would be grudge bearing. If I'm, if I, if I'm unwilling to reconcile, unwilling to work toward but yet I hold that offense. That grudge bearing, you probably heard this compared. I think the language is very similar to caring for an infant, isn't it? We, we, we bear grudges. We carry them. We carry a grudge. We hold a grudge. We even nurse a grudge. You can let it go. You can, you can let it go. Anger, inevitable. Resentment, Optional. You can, you can release it to the sovereignty of God and move on. Hebrews 12, verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. You can't contain this. You can't contain it. It's like yeast. I mean, it's just going to spread. There is no containing it. Many will be defiled if you allow that root of bitterness to spring up. You can overlook offense. Now that takes humility, doesn't it? Because you know what that means is that you don't get the smug satisfaction of being shown to be right. 
You just have to release that to the Lord that your, your rightness will not be seen and celebrated and noted. That takes humility to say, we're just gonna allow it to go on. It won't be the last time and I'm sure I've been guilty of it myself. So releasing it to the Lord. Are you okay not getting credit for that? Let me tell you another Rick Lyle story. Again, years ago, this is 20 years ago. I was in a class that he was teaching. This is on taking credit. I was on a class that he was teaching. And in the teaching, I probably told you all this, he, he said something to this effect. He said, I, you know, I, was, I just heard a sermon not long ago. He said, I, it may have been Piper, may have been Alistair Begg, I don't, somebody. And then he went right on to quote something that I had said the previous week. The sermon, I recognized him. Like, no, I, that, was, that was last week's sermon. I said that. And you know what's happening in my black heart? Like, Alistair Begg says all the good things, right? Like, it's, it's not Alistair Begg. It's not John Piper. We've, we've laughed about that over the years. You know, like, you know, you don't have to take credit for that. Just release it to the Lord. Now, let me just pause right here. Everything I've talked about to this point in the sermon, every bit of it is internal. This is before you ever address your offender. This has all happened in your heart before you ever engage the one with whom you are in conflict. So, first viable response, overlook the offense. Again, from Ken Sandy, drawing directly from him, the second scriptural response would be reconciliation. If the offense is too serious to overlook or its damage to the relationship is too great, then we seek to resolve it. And we're given a lot in scripture on how to do that. Colossians chapter three, verse 13. Bear with one another. Really love that. I love how practical that is. You know what he's saying there? Put up with each other. Tolerate one another. Bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So work toward reconciliation. And this is where kind of the practical outgrowth of that will be our last little section here on exactly what does it look like to reconcile. And it may be that it's just gonna be too difficult for you to manage alone. And that's where you pull in trusted friends to help you sort through and untangle the mess with the aim of being restored. But what Colossians 3.13 calls us to, whatever means you employ, we must get to the point where we forgive. If, you don't take, if, you, if you're not taking notes, just write that in big, bold letters somewhere on your bulletin. Because really, I think this is at the root of everything we're discussing here, is a readiness and eagerness to forgive our offenders, to release our offenders in the same way that we have enjoyed forgiveness from the Lord. And you know that that is absolutely the case. If you are in Christ, he does not hold your offenses over you anymore. So as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are to forgive one another. And there's some, there's some maybe nuanced language that we could talk through. What does it mean to forgive? What does it mean to pardon? But, but forgiveness is internal. That happens in my heart. And when I forgive a brother or sister, I am forever relinquishing my right to hurt you for hurting me. 
I'm giving up. That means I'm not bringing it back up again. I'm not going to use this as a weapon in a few months. I am releasing it. As the Lord has forgiven me, I'm never going to... Do you know you're never going to face your sin again, Christian? Right now. He doesn't relate to you as an adulterer. He doesn't relate to you as a liar. He doesn't relate to you as a selfish man or woman. He relates to you as one who has been cleared of their sin. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you are to forgive one another. Whatever means you employ, the aim is an eagerness, a readiness to forgive your offender, relinquishing forever your right to hurt them for hurting you. Final scriptural means for handling conflict from Ken Sandy is negotiation. Negotiation. Philippians chapter two, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. When our children learn this, we use the word lowliness. And when they would quote it, when they were really little, they'd get really low to the ground. In lowliness, in humility of mind. Count others more significant than yourselves. Massive, isn't it? Let each of us look not only to our own interest, but also to the interests of others. So practical, so livable. I'm not just concerned with how I'm gonna come out of this. I have real concern that you be okay. I'm not just concerned with my own interests. You're not just concerned with your own interests, but with the interests of others. And this might be particularly necessary in things related to money or property rights, other things that are where, where negotiation becomes necessary. What, what, can we, uh, what, what, what would be a fair treatment of this? The church I served previous to this one, uh, there were two doctors who were in the same practice. Um, one owned the practice, one had worked there, had signed a non-compete, was actually moving, and there were some questions to whether or not his new practice was going to be outside the bounds of his non-compete uh, agreement. And, uh, you know, 1 Corinthians 6 says, brothers don't take brothers to court. And so they came to the church and said, Help us untangle this. And so our elders and a few other trusted men, we sat down and we negotiated over a series of evenings working through what we feel like would be a fair treatment of that. Well, that would be a legitimate and scriptural process. So overlook the offense, reconciliation, negotiation. Now, how does this look scripturally? Let's hit this real quickly and we will be done. How do we do it? Well, this is the process across church history that has been referred to as discipline. This is church discipline. And this is a scriptural pattern that we're obligated to submit to. Discipline in the Bible is always spoken of positively. Do you know that? Not negatively. It's not, it's not, it's not punitive. It's not vengeance. It is restorative. Discipline is a sign of your adoption. Discipline is a sign of sonship. It's, it's, sign, it's a sign that you belong to the Lord. It's always spoken of positively. Let's see Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 and following. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises everyone whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, which we have all participated, you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we all have earthly brothers, fathers who have disciplined us. We respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? 
for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best for them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, boy, this is true, verse 11, Hebrews 12, 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. Strive for peace with everyone, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. No, 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 no discipline for the moment is pleasant. I, I doubt that your toddler is mature enough to say, man, thanks, Mom. I, this, is, this is serving my eternal good. Thank you. That's valuable. I, I appreciate it. I know that's hard for you, but no, it's not pleasant in the moment, but afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So what's the method look like? Number one, make a private appeal for repentance. Now, I'm drawing here from Matthew 18. So you can go back and do your own study. Matthew 18, verse 15. Make a private appeal for repentance. If your brother or sister sins against you, go, tell him his fault between you and him alone. You have not pulled in anybody else into this discussion. This is a discussion between you and your offender. And if he listens to you, you have gained a brother. Now, by the way, that's what we hope for, isn't it? You, want, you just want a heart that is just teachable, that, man, I hear a hard word of correction. I've seen this happen. In this room, I've been a part of conversations where just a direct word, and the brother or sister just says, boy, you're right. I need to, I, amen. I, let's, what, what measures do I need to take to make this right? We used to tell our kids when they were little, if you will hear a word of correction, then a word of correction is all that's necessary. Yeah, true. Just hear a word of Christ. Just, just go to them one on one. That private appeal. Go alone. A few suggestions, real quickly, about that. So this is these are sub points under that first point. Go alone. Number one, be careful about tone. You don't come in with guns blazing. Proverbs chapter fifteen, verse one: A soft answer turns away wrath, but grievous words stir up. Anger. So in your bearing, in your approach to them, be attentive, to be gentle. Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind, all gentle. Uh, uh, correcting his opponents with gentleness is the language of Paul there. So your bearing in general. I've, I've had to learn sometimes when I'm talking seriously, and Matt said some, it's a very similar thing, sometimes our face kind of darkens a little bit because we're dealing with serious matters. So we have to even pray there. Lord, give me a spirit-governed countenance even in talking to the one near me. So be careful about tone. Number two, be wise regarding timing. The right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing. So you want to be careful. You don't deal with a serious matter when you're just walking out of the room like that. there's, There's an appropriate time for that. Proverbs 15, 23 To make an apt answer is a joy to a man and a word in season. How good it is. We've already referenced Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk proceed out of your mouth, but only that thing which is good for building up as fits the occasion according to the need of the moment. Being attentive to timing as fits the occasion that may give grace to the hearer. So be sensitive regarding timing. Number three, say what's necessary and then stop. That is sober wisdom, friends. Say what's necessary, then quit talking. 
Proverbs 10, 19, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. It's almost unavoidable. If you just keep talking, you just let your mouth get, it's almost inevitable that you're gonna sin in some way. Where there's no, where words are many, transgression is not lacking. But he who restrains his lips is prudent. By the way, same language as James uses, isn't it? What's the best thing we can do with our lips? Bridle it. That's what James says, like an animal. Hold it into, uh, using restraint, care, care in that. So say what's necessary and stop. Next, make your judgments charitable. We get into so much trouble when we assign motive. Look, you're not omniscient. You don't know what's in their heart, so be guarded and careful. Make your judgments charitable. First Corinthians chapter 13, verse seven. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love is not skeptical. It's predisposed to believe the best. So love, love is inclined to believe. Number two, if they do not receive the private appeal for repentance. Number two, involve one or two others. Verse 16, so you made the private appeal for forgiveness, it has not been received. If he does not, verse 16, if he does not listen, take one or two others with you that every charge may be established in the evidence of two or three witnesses. So as you go, they've not received it, you go with them, you bring somebody else with you and seek to be restored. I would say in that, you, it would be unwise to choose people who are biased to your position. You bring someone who loves this brother or sister and has evidenced love for the brother and sister. Bring it with them, lay it before them, and again, together appeal for repentance. So you've gone alone, you bring one or two with you. Again, the whole appeal is turn, come. Let's, let's, let's set this right. If they do not receive that, third point, chapter 17, or chapter 18, Matthew 18, uh, verse 17a, if he refuses to listen to the two or three, then tell it to the church. So there is a place. So we're explaining how we operate here as a church. This is how we would expect this to, to unfold here. If you've got someone who is in persistent sin, they've not heard a private appeal for repentance. They have not heard two or three coming to them with an appeal to come back. If that has been resisted wholesale, then you tell it to the church. And under our polity, that would mean come, come to the elders and they'll walk with you and they'll help you. And we'll, 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 we'll work through this with you together. Uh, what it would not mean is stand up in a gathering and expose your, your brothers. That, that when, telling it to the church does not mean just tell everybody. Let's come, let's work through it together. If they persist in defiance of that counsel, but by the way, all the way through this, what's your motive? Your motive's unchanged, right? It's not punitive. It's not shaming. It's not vengeance. It's not you, uh, uh, exposing your rightness. It is love and restoration, a desire to see them come back. Never vengeance, never shame, never retribution. If that is, if that is not received, then the final grievous step is to withdraw fellowship from the offender, and that's, that happens infrequently, but it, it, it happens at points where it, all we have to do at this point is, as best we can tell, as best we can tell, this brother or sister is not evidencing submission to Christ. And while his, his or her profession is one of faith, 
everything we're observing here leads us to conclude this, this is not someone who's submitting to the lordship of Christ. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you, Jesus said, as a Gentile or a tax collector. By the way, how do we treat Gentiles and tax collectors? We love them. We love them. And our whole heart is come home, come home. And when you do, we're going to throw a big party. And you will be welcomed and received back. And we, you will be celebrated. Our whole desire in this is to see them restored. This would apply to those who persist in unrepentant sin and also to the factious man, the one who is stirring up dissent. Titus 3 verse 10, as for the one who stirs up division, as for the factious man, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing else to do with him. Warn him once, warn him a second time, and you absolutely withdraw fellowship from him. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. By the way, you know what that means? We care too much for the whole to let one rogue element do this kind of harm, and it will do harm. And so it, shepherds carry sticks. Shepherds carry sticks. So get your things, and don't let the door hit you on your way out. If, they, if, the hope, if, if you're gonna create dissension in the body, warn them once, warn them a second time, have nothing else to do. And you say, Ronnie, are, are you telling me that there are some people we treat differently than other people? That's exactly what I'm telling you. Have nothing else to do with them. Withdraw fellowship from them. Make no friendship, Proverbs 22, make no friendship with a man given to anger. Or go with a wrathful man lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Proverbs 16, 17, I appeal to you brothers. Mark those who cause divisions. Create obstacles contrary to the doctrine which you've received of me and avoid them. Does that sound ambiguous to you? Avoid them. You see them coming down the hallway, you duck into the bathroom. Just avoid them. Why discipline? Three up. I'm past an hour. Hang in there. Hang in there. Restoration, protection of the body, glory of God. Why? Restoration, that's our hope. Come home, come home, come home. We'll receive you. Protection of the body, we're not gonna let you work harm here. We we will not let you work harm here. And love for the glory of God. Every single week we come to the table as a means of declaring not only our union with Christ, but our union with one another. When when Paul gave us instruction on how this is to work, he was talking to a a church at Corinth that was fractured. The, 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 The rich people had contempt toward the poor people. The poor people had contempt toward the rich people to the point that he had to look at them and say, look, is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? We've long seen this as a pattern. When we commune here in just a moment, we are bearing public testimony to our union with Christ and our union to one another, that we are one, partaking of one body together. Don't you long to see that as a pattern? I will say this. You show me a church that will discipline themselves to practice what I just laid out to you, 
they're going to be just fine. And by the way, that is not typical. You've, you've heard the crazy stories, haven't you? Crazy stories of division that happened within a church. There was a church near where I first pastored down in Florida where there was a, an actual division within the church as to whether or not the piano should be on this side of the auditorium or on this side of the auditorium. They fought over that kind of nonsense. And the way they resolved it was one week they'd have it over here and then they'd roll it over here and do it that way over here. And then they'd roll it back the next week. It's nonsense. We've been given a, hey, show me in the Bible. Show me in the Bible. We have been given instruction on how we handle disputes. More typically, careless talk does exactly what James says it would do. It's combustible. And more typically, what happens is people start talking, a fire starts, the whole building goes up in flames, and they walk out during the fire. And that is, that is not right. That is not the way we are ordered to pursue reconciliation. Let's just, let's just close out our time. I'm going to do this, you do this. Knowing that there is probably no more compelling apologetic than people living together in community, people who love one another despite their disputes and differences. I think that testifies to the legitimacy of the incarnation and God's love for his people, knowing that. Let's just pray together. God, make me a force for unity. Not just contributing, not contributing to the chaos, actual, a positive force for unity in this body. May God grant it. So Lord, grant it, grant it. Would you grant that here? Protect, oh God, protect this body. She is yours, she is yours. So care for her. Lord, help us to walk in maturity as people who have been cleared of our 10,000 talent debt. Maybe we'd be free and generous in releasing the debts of those around us and loving as we have been loved. We pray that you do it for your name's sake. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.